Owning a home is still the American dream, but it comes with plenty of emotional and financial challenges. Join real estate broker Ron Evans each week as he shares the latest industry and local real estate market news through interviews with other agents and industry professionals. If you're confused about today's real estate market or just want to understand the home buying and selling process, this show is for you. Here's your host, Ron Evans. Hey everybody, this is Ron Evans, and uh, thank you for joining me for another episode here on my Real Estate 101 podcast. And uh, like I started a few weeks ago, this is Market Matters Monday. Market Matters, if for those of you not familiar, is just an email report that comes out from CAR, the California Association of Realtors, and it breaks down five or six relevant topics via sharing articles that it curates. Some of these are California specific. Most, however, are not. They are nationwide specific and it has to do with some interesting aspects of our real estate market and our real estate business. So I will share these articles with you. I will link all of the articles if you'd like to read them at your leisure and read them in more depth. I'm just going to give you like a little synopsis of everything, maybe some of my own input, and I will ask for some questions and feedback. As always, I do appreciate the comments and questions that I get. If you have comments or questions for this particular podcast, please leave them below and I will get back to you. If you feel like you would rather email or text, my email is realestate101 at ronevansrealty.com. And texting is 949-929-2270. I also like to take recommendations for future podcast episode subjects. Let's dive in. First article that they share is titled, Pet Friendly Features Can Help Sell a House Faster. And this is sourced from M Report. The COVID-19 pandemic pushed more people to adopt pets during the lockdown. Raise your hand. Which is now driving owners to purchase properties with their pets in mind, according to a Zillow report. Pet owners are more likely to buy larger homes with more bedrooms. 36% purchased a house with at least four bedrooms compared to 24% of buyers without pets. The research also found that private fenced-in outdoor space was a big attractor for pet owners with 73% of buyers saying that outdoor space is extremely important compared to people without pets. I think that it's a very interesting thing. I know that we don't always consider pets um, this report also goes on to say that now, as of 2021, 73% of buyers out there are now reporting to have at least one pet at home. You know, I think typically and historically, we've always felt that you think of families, you know, mother, father, kids, father, father, kids, mother, mother, kids, whatever you're vision of that is, 
but you think of families of multiple people that may want to buy a house and, and how that might look, but we never factor into pets. At least I don't think very many people ever factor into pets and, and how their house might present to someone who's a pet owner. You know, it's not uncommon, especially according to this report, that pet owners are now more likely to look for larger space than non-pet owners, regardless of kids being involved. So you might have a family of four with two kids with no pets, and they're fully content to just, you know, kids maybe share a room. They're going to maybe get just the very minimal amount of space needed sometimes. But you put a pet into that equation and suddenly things expand. They need more room because they now have to consider their pets, not just their kids. It's amazing how we might, how we might look at that. So I think this is a really fun article to, to dive into. Um, and I'll be interested to see what you guys uh, respond with this, with your comments. Um, it also is impacting renters. 57% of renters now own a pet. And that's up from under 50% before the pandemic. A lot has changed. A lot has changed as a result of our pandemic. But we move on. And I think it's pretty cool that uh, we're finding more homes for pets. Um, I also think that a lot more have been adopted, which is fantastic. So... Again, we, we adopted a dog right at the beginning of the pandemic, not really looking at we were getting ready to go into lockdown. It just happened to be a coincidence. But uh, you can count us in there, my family in there, with one of these that now has an extra pet at home. Anyway, pretty cool article. Let me know what you think. Have, have you fallen into the, the pandemic pet ownership category? Okay, the next article comes from Barron's. It's titled Millennials to Keep Housing Strong for Years. Along with ultra-low mortgage rates, rising wealth, and growing families are prompting more millennials to become homeowners. Young adults ranging from 26 to 41 years old have become homeowners since the pandemic and accounted for the largest share of home buyers over the past year, 37%. The pandemic is also motivating purchases. The number of households headed by adults ages 30 to 44 years old jumped by 1.3 million during the pandemic. I think this is a pretty cool topic to look at. I know that my own experience with this, with my own clients and people I come in contact with is before the pandemic. It almost seemed like a lot of millennials weren't buying homes. And I don't recall what the reasoning was behind that. Like if they just wanted to be more fluid not feel tied down or, or what it was, but definitely since the pandemic, I can even see in my own business that uh, millennials are now starting to step up 
into home ownership. I think what's driving it um, is a combination of things. It's shrinking debt, expanding their own wealth, um, growing families. We're starting to see a generation that's starting to get married younger and younger and, and start families younger and younger and younger than my generation did, Generation X, um, and the low interest rates. So by shrinking debt, you know, they're, they're getting out of debt sooner. They're following different um, debt reduction guides, maybe making sure that their home uh, student loans are paid off, not a lot of credit card debt, so they can, their affordability for a home is high. And they're using real estate to expand their wealth. We already touched about on the growing families. And of course, we have the uh, low interest rates. So millennials are working and reducing their debt. Um, right now, millennials age range is from 26 to 41 years old, and they are about 22%. So over a fifth of our population. That's over 70 million people in the United States are of the millennial generation. And they account for 36% of our workforce. So over a third of our workforce. So a fifth of our population, a third of our workforce. Again, they've accumulated their savings to pay down their student loans and other debt, um, which a lot of people see is the biggest hurdle to buying a home, that kind of debt. I think an interesting, interesting statistic I see here is that the average young millennial has about $23,000 in student loan debt. However, by the time they're in their 30s, so you go from in your mid-20s to your early 30s, their student loan debt's under $1,000. By the time they're in their 40s, early 40s, it's all paid off. That's contributing into that generation. That's the biggest key indicator I can see um, into why they're able to buy homes and why they are now buying homes. Really good article. Really good article. Another key thing I think I see here is that it says the millennials peak earning years are ages 45 to 54. That's another thing is why they're getting into homes earlier now because they're going to earn most of their money after they're already into a home and that just helps them be able to finance either second homes investment properties or do a move up appropriately. Good article, good article. I think you'll enjoy checking this one out. All right, article number three comes from the source Smart Asset. It's titled The Average Costs of Home Ownership Over the First Year. I'm going to tell you right now, this is something that I think most new home buyers 
disregard or don't take fully into account. Kind of like adopting a dog, you have your costs associated with adopting the dog or pet, but you don't always think about what the full budget's gonna be, especially at the very beginning. So let's dive into this one, the average cost of home ownership over the first year. The first year of home ownership can be one of the most expensive years, that is true. After all, new homeowners are paying for down payment, closing costs, costs of moving in, and outfitting their new home. Not even talking about if you move into something that requires a little bit or a lot of updating or renovating the budget for that. This is just talking about outfitting it, maybe new furniture, placement of things, filling in some gaps, paint, the bare minimum. First year home ownership costs can fluctuate greatly among metros, that's areas. For example, in Indianapolis, new homeowners can expect to spend more than $50,000 over the first year, but that is over seven times less than San Francisco. Here in my state, up in the Bay Area, the average cost in San Francisco for the first year is $365,000. That's $1,000 a day that you need to budget for your first year. It also takes twice as much to close in New York City. The median home value in New York City is $710,000. While that isn't the highest median home value in this entire study, closing costs in New York are more than double what they are anywhere else, thanks in large part to a citywide transfer tax. So this is New York City, not New York State. So they rank all these cities, the top 20, or just 20. There's 20 on this list that they rank from, uh, they consider the most affordable to, I guess, the least affordable. And Indianapolis was definitely the most affordable in first year costs, $50,000. That breaks down, and the bulk of what this is going to be to is your 20% down payment. So it's taking all that into account, like we talked about before. So if you took that $50,000 in Indianapolis on average, 37,000 of that is your 20% down payment. 2,800 of that is for closing costs. Your mortgage payment for the, for the whole year, $7,500. $1,900 in homeowner's insurance and $900 in property taxes. Let's compare that to middle of the pack here, Phoenix, Arizona, my home city, where I'm from. First year cost there's about $89,000, just, just under $89,000. $67 of that is going to be your 20% down payment. $4,000 of that closing cost, $13,000, almost $14,000 for your mortgage payment for the year. $2,000 in homeowner's insurance 
and about $1,500 in property taxes. I like this chart because you can kind of look at all these different aspects here. And you can kind of see like, okay, I might pay less here in this type of market in one category, but in another category, I might pay a lot more. So if you're looking at property taxes, for instance, Austin, Texas, the big appeal to Texas has always been, oh, we have no state income tax, but have you looked at their property tax lately? First year property taxes on average in Austin, Texas is about $2,500. But then you take New York City, $974 in New York City, and the property obviously costs more in New York City than it would in Austin, Texas. Different, different factors to look at. I think, I think these kinds of things are cool. You can stack rank the city and kind of like look at all the different aspects, but I think it's just neat to kind of pick and choose some of these numbers to kind of compare market to market, knowing that it's not just home values that are different from market to market, but all these other indicators are different from market to market. So some of the, the two key takeaways from this article, the two biggest tips, number one, you want to mind your monthly payment because people who spend more than 30% of their income on housing are considered to be housing cost burdened by the Federal Department of Housing and Urban Development. Some experts even recommend your monthly mortgage payment should be no more than 28% of your gross, not your net, your gross monthly income. Other economists like Dave Ramsey, some of you out there may follow his method of debt reduction, assert that your mortgage payment shouldn't exceed 25% of your take-home pay. So that's 25% of your net, not 28% of your gross. That's the difference in ideologies and philosophies. Personally, I don't think either one's wrong. I think that you pick what's best for you and stick with it. That's the most important thing when it comes to looking into these types of things for your budget. Key tip number two, have a pro in your corner. This comes from the experts, have a pro in your corner. A financial advisor can help you invest and save for a down payment and advise you on how much to spend on a home purchase. Finding a qualified financial advisor doesn't have to be hard. They give you a tool here in this article that can match you with up to three financial advisors in your area, and you can interview your advisor matches at no cost to you. Sounds like it's maybe like an Angie's List type of situation. So I agree with the sentiment that having a financial advisor is very, very, very important. I will tell you, if you don't think you have like the portfolio or the income necessary to actually go out and pay for a financial advisor, consult with your tax accountant. Even if you're just like a regular Joe and you're getting your taxes done by somebody, hopefully you've got a relationship with them. Talk to them about different things. Consult with them. When it comes to looking for a financial advisor, um, I don't know if I would even go on personally. I don't know if I would go on to like a searching tool like this. I would probably contact friends and family who I know have investments or do invest money um, and find out, get recommendations from them on who to talk to. I don't know if I would trust an Angie's list 
type of a situation when it comes to how to invest my money. Just my personal opinion. You do what you will with that. Okay, let's move along. Next article. This comes from Yahoo Finance. First time buyers don't make this costly mistake. Intimidated first time home buyers who have been shut out of the competitive market shouldn't give up. Home ownership is still a possibility if they know how to navigate through the process. Experts say look for homes that are a little under your budget. I like that the experts are saying that because that's how I try to consult my buyers in this market. So you can afford to offer above the asking price if needed. That's key. If your budget's if you're approved for $800,000 and that's your budget, don't be looking for an $800,000 home cuz you're likely not going to get it. It's going to go for 820, 825, 850 or more. I would be looking in the low to mid sevens personally. Closing costs, which can add a couple of thousand dollars, shouldn't be forgotten as well. Buyers also should keep in mind that not every home needs to be perfect, especially for first time home buyers, because the land that you buy is what grows in value. Let me repeat that it's the land that you buy that grows in value, not the home itself. So compromising on your floor plan or getting a finished basement in order to buy a place that will appreciate in value in a couple of years might be worth it. That's pretty good advice. I'm not going to lie. I think we always look at or I don't think a lot of people always look at like renovation costs and things. They only help the value of your property in the immediate and near future, not the long-term future. At some point, not very long after you do a renovation or do updates to a home, it peaks and it starts coming right back down in, in its value. But it's the land that you sit on because there's only so much real estate that's what's always gonna be going up in value. So the trick is finding that sweet spot. So according to Zillow, US home prices are forecasted to appreciate 11.7% in value over the next 11 months. Now we've already gone up about 17 or 18% year over year from pre-pandemic to post-pand, the first year out of the pandemic. And here in Orange County, we are usually one of the number one in the nation year over year, like clockwork, about 5% increase. So we've already tripled that in one year over year. Now we're gonna more than double it in the next year. That's just crazy. That's another reason, that's one reason why if you're still thinking about buying and you've gotten discouraged, don't give up because the prices are just gonna keep going up. Um, it's very difficult to try to play the timing game of our market, but you can still take steps towards the rite of passage of adulthood and home ownership.
Never forget that buying a home is the biggest purchase most people will make in a lifetime. The market can be confusing to navigate, but don't lose hope. Here are some keys. This is from Stephanie Rule from NBC. She's a business correspondent. She just reiterates what we already talked about. Look for homes that are a little under your budget. Don't forget about closing costs. The home doesn't need to be perfect. You can make it perfect over time, especially if you're a first-time home buyer. Don't hesitate to compromise on a floor plan if the finished product is what's actually gonna appreciate over time. There's more in here talking about 20% down payment. If you do or don't have a 20% down payment, right now you don't need a 20% down payment. And if you don't have a 20% down payment, you don't necessarily need to go with like an FHA type of a government-backed loan with a lot of MPI. Um, there are some conventional loans out there that will offer you 15% down, 10% down, 5% down, and some do and some don't have uh, uh, mortgage insurance attached to them. Talk to your lender. If you're local to me and you don't have a lender, contact me. I'll put you in contact with a few good ones that you can consult with and choose for yourself. Just keep an eye on your emergency fund, your FICO score, so your credit score how much you have for a down payment and what your percentage of your take home is, is going to be going towards your home. The number one mistake you should avoid is don't forget and give up on a home inspection. Just because we're in a competitive market, there are things that you can skimp on. There are things that you can contractually kind of wave away and give up on to try to make your offer more competitive, please don't ever, ever, ever give up on a home inspection. You, especially here in California, you are obliged and you are, it is your responsibility as the buyer to do all the necessary inspections. If an agent is telling you you need to give up on a home inspection, unless the home, just looking at the home, you know you're gonna like level it, you're gonna gut it, you're gonna do whatever to it, so you really don't care. If it's a home you're gonna be living in, in any kind of condition, don't give up on a home inspection. I cannot stress that enough. You do not need to have surprises once you get the keys. All right, I beat that with a stick. Let's go on to the next one. The housing crisis will continue if Congress doesn't address this problem. This comes from CNN. The nation is facing a dramatic housing shortage, forcing more families to live farther from jobs, increasing commute times and slowing economic growth. Congress has an opportunity to address the problem if the Build Back Better legislation, or in the Build Back Better legislation, but the housing solutions that dominate the package are more focused on addressing the symptoms of this crisis rather than its root cause. Oh, let's dig into this. The nation, Faces a dramatic, I'm just going to read this article 
out loud to you, you can come back and dive into it and read it. But I think this is um, super, super, super important topic right now. Um, because a lot of what we're going through financially all comes from the housing crisis and the limited availability of homes. The nation faces a dramatic housing shortage, sending home prices and rents through the roof all over the country. The spike in housing costs is making it harder for some to buy their first home and for others to afford their rent. So what's lost in a lot of this is the renters. Increasing demand for subsidized housing and widening the wealth gap between renters and homeowners. It is also forcing more families to live farther from jobs, increasing commute times, undermining the labor force participation and slowing economic growth. Fortunately, depending on how you look at it, Congress has an opportunity to address the problem in the Build Back Better legislation currently on the table. Unfortunately, it appears the housing solutions that dominate the package are more focused on addressing the symptoms of this growing crisis rather than its root cause. Since the days following the financial crisis more than a decade ago, so back in 2007, 8, and 9, the nation has built far too few homes to meet that demand. The shortfall is currently close to 1.8 million homes or roughly the number of homes built in an entire year, leading to a record low vacancy rate for homes for sale and close to one and close to one for homes for rent. But even these daunting numbers don't capture the gravity of the problem as the entire shortfall comes at the bottom end of the market. As in the rest of the economy, it is those of more modest means who are bearing the burden. This is true. I don't think that can be argued. While the imbalance between supply and demand is unfortunately not new, the opportunity to do something about it is. For the first time in decades, Congress is discussing a dramatic increase in domestic spending to address the wide range of social economic needs facing the nation. If there were ever a moment to balance the increasingly burdensome shortfall in housing supply, this is it. The legislation needs to improve the economics of building and renovating affordable housing, which any number of programs are already well positioned to do. For instance, the Housing Trust Fund and Capital Magnet Fund provide grants to nonprofits to invest in affordable housing and other critical community infrastructure in lower income communities and the Low Income Housing Tax Credit and Neighborhood Homes Investment Act use tax incentives to do much of the same thing. There is no shortage of well-developed, even bipartisan options. However, Congress appears more focused on the havoc that the supply shortfall is wreaking than the underlying problem. The initial proposal passed out of legislation, passed out of the House of Representatives, would allocate more than half of the spending set aside for housing to cover subsidized housing through rental vouchers and upgrades to the public housing stock. And a coalition of members of Congress has since pushed to increase that share to more than 80%. There is no doubt that the nation could really spend 
could readily spend all that and more and still not close the shortfalls in public housing and voucher funding. But if policymakers don't address the supply shortfall, they won't deal with the underlying problem. So that that so many need subsidized housing in the first place. If Congress were to instead focus on the lion's share of funding on increasing the supply of affordable housing, we would gradually see the growth in rents and the home prices slow enough for wages to catch up. See, that's what's off here is housing is astronomically increasing, wages aren't. While wages are getting better, they aren't increasing at the same rate as housing. That way, fewer families need a subsidy to pay their rent and more are able to buy their first home. It will take years to climb out of a ditch that has long been in the making. And in the meantime, we will no doubt need additional funding for housing assistance like vouchers and public housing to mitigate the ongoing term. But if we focus, focus only on those symptoms of the supply shortfall, we will never, we will forever be burdened with them no matter how much we spend. That's a very interesting take. I'm glad I read that whole thing. We can't keep putting a Band-Aid on it. And I know that it's a very touchy subject. A lot of people don't want affordable housing anywhere near their neighborhood because it has a stigma attached to it. But it's quite possible that this is the best solution to really tackle it is to just come up with an idea, come up with something that will make housing affordable for that large population that we have in the United States that wants to buy a home, is ready to buy a home, is willing to buy a home, and is capable of buying a home, but just can't compete because the prices are just, just getting out of their reach. What do you think? I would love to hear your take on that one. All right, last article, as always, has to do with mortgages. Mortgage rates fall slightly. This is from CNBC. Total, total mortgage application volume fell 3.3% last week compared with the previous week, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association Seasonally Adjusted Index. The average contract interest rate for 30-year fixed mortgages with conforming loan balances dropped to 3.24% from 3.3%, with points remaining unchanged at 0.34%. That includes the origination fee for loans with a 20% down payment. The average contract interest rate for 30-year fixed mortgages with conforming loan balances, so that's $548,250 or less, decreased, again, to 3.24% from 3.3%. Refinance demand was down 33% from the same week one year ago. That's a sharp drop, something we haven't seen a lot of recently. The refi rate's going down, demand is going down. Mortgage applications to purchase a home fell 2% for the week and were 9% lower than the same week one year ago. That's pretty easy to explain. This is That's a, more of a seasonal thing on top of the fact that we just have no supply out there for these people as we've just been discussing ad nauseum. So the 2% drop week over week is not unexpected. And honestly, the 9% drop year over year isn't unexpected. If you've listened to any of my previous episodes where we're talking about that, just the housing market in um, 
uh, in more detail, you'll know that this time last year was just cranking and booming because we had the lockdown, which delayed our spring market, which delayed our summer market, which delayed our fall market. And so everything got pushed back. So what we were experiencing in the fall and late fall and winter was something we would have normally experienced in the summer. So that year over year doesn't, doesn't surprise me at all. So good information. Again, all six of these articles will be linked in the description and uh, show notes. I encourage you all to read on your own and digest everything on your own. And please get with me with your questions and comments. I'd love to have um, some back and forth on a lot of these topics. Again, the email address to contact me is realestate101 at ronevansrealty.com. Text me at 949-929-2270. I'm working on some special topics to uh, come back on with uh, in another couple of days. I really want to talk about the whole Zillow iBuyer thing, and I'm just trying to figure out the best, if I can have a guest that can come on, and the best guest to come on, so stay tuned for that. Otherwise, we will see you later. Folks, I appreciate your continued support. If you haven't already done so, please don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. Leave your comments and questions below, and I'll get back to you when I can. Have a great day.